in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'll be starting in verse 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a phone, uh, there's Bibles in the chair uh, in front of you, and that is found on page 992. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be starting in verse 14 and reading through uh, chapter 4, verse 5. <clears throat> I hope to come to you soon. I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay you, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Good morning, church. You can keep your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, we're going to be skipping ahead in our study of, of 1 Timothy this morning to chapter 4. And um, it's not because uh, the elders here decided that the rest of chapter 3 was irrelevant or unnecessary. Uh, this was a misalignment of Romania trip and and preaching scheduling. So um, if you're wondering what happens in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16, then you need to tune in in a couple weeks. You got it? Okay. Good. Uh, well, before we dig into chapter 4 this morning, I have a, a few requirements for all of you. So you might want to write this down. So you pen, your notes. You are forbidden to drink alcohol. You are not allowed to sit in the first row. You are not allowed to vote for any political party other than Republican. Don't ever smoke cigarettes, cigars, pipes, or tobacco products of any kind. No dancing is safe. You cannot dance if you want to. You must leave your friends behind because if your friends dance, well, they're no friends of yours. Pull your kids out of public school and homeschool them immediately. Avoid playing card games or gambling. Don't even think about wearing hats indoors. You are forbidden to get any tattoos of mom, of a girlfriend's name, or any other tattoo. You are all required to get your COVID vaccines and boosters. All of you must wear a mask at all times, and don't you dare be late to church. And by late, I mean you need to be at least 10 minutes early. Don't watch R-rated movies. You're forbidden to get the COVID vaccine. And never, ever be caught wearing a mask especially in your car. 
You are forbidden to listen to any and all secular music and only allowed to listen to Christian musicians. You are forbidden to do business with any company that supports immoral anti-Christian values. You are required to use an iPhone and forbidden to own and operate an Android. Don't you ever think about saying the F word, the S word, the D word, the B word, A word, any word. <laughs> it is far better to be single. So stop encouraging other people to get married. And never, ever eat gluten, dairy, or sugar ever again. Never. And if you do all these things, not only will I approve of you, but so will God. And your eternal salvation will be forever secured. Now, obviously, adhering to any or even all of those requirements or restrictions is permissible. Whether you follow them as well as if you disregard them. Yet how often do you and I fall suspect to grabbing a hold of something so seemingly innocuous and then we quickly turn them into a mandatory obligation, not only for ourselves, but for others as well? Yeah, I know that I can excel at adding extra requirements and restrictions to the gospel when unnecessary and irrelevant prohibitions are added with the expectation that others must obey, then the gospel message is distorted. And this has serious consequences. The, in today's text, Paul draws Timothy's attention to those who prohibit good things and therefore pervert the gospel Paul then exhorts the church to remedy this abuse with gratitude by, by simply expressing gratefulness and thankfulness. Instead of prohibiting and perverting the gospel, we appreciate good things and advance the gospel. Rather than, than building a ministry that seeks to prohibit the generosity of Jesus, we ought to appreciate and even celebrate the good things that God has given us. See, the, gener the generosity of Jesus does not produce a culture of, of restrictions and requirements. The generosity of Jesus promotes a culture of gratitude. The only thing that you and I ought to encourage one another to supplement with the gospel is our thankfulness and appreciation for the good work of Christ on the cross. I can be so consumed with the things that I forbid and, and how I abstain that that I can easily lose sight of what I am truly grateful for. And I have to ask myself, am I known more for what I am against or for how truly thankful I am for what God has given me? And in the church at Ephesus, the church of which Paul is writing to, of which Timothy was a leader, in the church of Ephesus, as, as well as today, men and women were led to believe that, that forbidding God's good gifts was better than enjoying them with gratefulness. And that was no small issue. It was a gospel issue since people were leaving the faith. 
the additional requirements and restrictions were in fact distorting the free gift of the gospel of Jesus. So if you do have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read again for us the first five verses of chapter 4 for us. This is what Paul writes. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now there are two points to the text this morning that I think will, will round out our time helpfully. Uh, the first is that prohibition perverts the gospel. Prohibition perverts the gospel. And second, appreciation advances the gospel. Prohibition perverts, appreciation advances. So point one this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, prohibition perverts the gospel. Yeah, there, there were some in and around Ephesus who were prohibiting certain activity and therefore perverting the message of Jesus. And again, this was not a minor concern, for Paul writes that some will leave the faith. Nor was this a mere premonition on Paul's part, for he says emphatically, as he forecasts, uh, the Spirit himself saying, again, now the Spirit expressly says, this is back to verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. So when Paul writes that the Spirit expressly says something, the intention is not to say that, that this is an inspiration of the Spirit that has more value than any other words of the Spirit that are inspired in this text. But what he is doing here is he's definitely driving the point home that, that what Paul is speaking about, this present phenomenon, he's using emphatic future language that was characteristic of much prophecy to highlight a very serious issue that this church was experiencing. The Spirit expressly says that some will fall away and depart from the faith. And what the Spirit emphatically says is that some people will depart from the faith. And it's not as though... People were expected to lose their, their personal faith as if something abstract that they once possessed could now be abandoned or relinquished. Rather, these men and women of the church that Timothy was a part of would leave the faith, that is, the actual community of believers. They would leave the church body. And this is characteristic of someone who once claimed to be a Christian and has renounced the gospel and therefore departed from the community of faith. They've apostatized. They no longer are a part of the faith. And as sad as it may be that people turn away, Paul is saying, again emphatically from the Spirit, this should not surprise us, that this happens. In fact, when someone abandons the faith, it should not throw our own faith into question. Rather, it should actually serve to prove the very words of Scripture. The Spirit expressly says that people will depart from the faith, for this is precisely what the Spirit says would happen. And in Ephesus, and, in, and yes, even here 
at Grace Hill Church. Spirit expressly says, some will depart. But that begs the question, then why are men and women leaving the faith? Why are they doing this? Well, if you look back at chapter 4, beginning with kind of the middle of verse 1, he says that some will depart from the faith. And again, the question, why? Why are some going to depart from the faith? Then he gives the answer, why? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Now, it was not the mere involvement of prohibitions that were improper or unhelpful. Paul was clearly not suggesting that that any and all prohibitions are wrong, that we can just do whatever we want, and that nothing should ever be uh, required or forbidden in the Christian life. That's not what Paul is suggesting. After all, Paul has previously, in this very letter itself in 1 Timothy, he's already previously mentioned and reinforced the binding nature of the moral law for all mankind, no less the Christian. And so it's not as though Paul has an issue with things that are forbidden or requirements in the Christian life. In fact, elsewhere, Scripture does indeed improve, approve of a person occasionally abstaining from certain foods, even from marriage, with an advantage to his or her own spiritual life or for the good of the kingdom. So the things that are happening aren't necessarily wrong things, but then what was wrong with these prohibitions? What made these things perverse? What made them distort the gospel? Well, whatever the practice or, or prohibition, and a positive word to describe this would be aesthetic, whatever the, whatever the, the practice or prohibition, uh, a person who practices uh, an aesthetic, for example, is just a, a person who practices some kind of severe self-discipline and abstains from a form of pleasure uh, especially for religious or spiritual reasons. And so when a person does this, we would call them an aesthetic when they either prohibit or avoid some sort of uh, practice in their life. But one problem with this type of self-denial is that it's often used as a way to become self-righteous. And the problem was that some in this church, in any church even today, the problem was that these people were deceived to believe that either celibacy or fasting were not just some good ideas, for some people, but were in fact necessary for salvation and holiness. There is nothing wrong in principle with being single or fasting or both. The trouble comes when these or other matters of, of relative indifference are treated as essentials to the gospel. It was, a, it was a wholehearted allegiance and commitment to these teachings. Again, if you look closely, you might have missed it the first time, but in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Devoting themselves. These were minor matters that became elevated to mandatory status. They were devoted. Now, does anyone know the difference between a devoted Packer fan and a casual Packer fan? But if, you're, if you're a devoted fan, you're, you're a shareholder, right? You own, you're an owner of the team. And not only do you have the schedule memorized, but you get phone notifications at start time. And 
you get constant updates on all the trade rumors, and you know all the stats, forwards and backwards. You probably have a huge library of Packer history and memorabilia. When they lose, it hurts you deeply. It might even ruin your week. But when they win, it might be the best thing that's happened to you all day, or even all week. Now, if you're a casual fan, you might enjoy watching the game. After all, it's not wrong to watch a game. You might even cheer when there's a good play. But this fan doesn't care if they lose or win. And the next day, they might even forgot they even watched the game. But devotion, commitment, allegiance, wholehearted sellout for something. It was devotion to these prohibitions, not mere entertainment or a consideration of whether they participate in them or not. There was a wholehearted commitment and adherence to what was prescribed. And now you might be wondering, then, well, where, where did these come from? Where did these people make these up? What was the source or cause that was leading these people out of the faith? Well, these men and women were quick to offer absolute compliance to these prohibitions because of the demonic activity at work behind the scenes. See, these, these prohibitions, Paul says, were classified demonic. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by, by devotion, by devoting themselves to what? To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits and demons. Now, a few nights ago, I was putting my son to bed, and he promptly asked, Dad, are ghosts real? And without hesitation, I said, yes. And I turned off the lights and said, good night. <laughs> uh, okay, it didn't quite happen like that. But I did say yes. All right, so why would I tell him that ghosts are real? <laughs> because, in fact, the spiritual world is real. It does exist. Now, there are, there are two errors that, that we need to avoid when we think about demons and deceitful spirits. The first error would be to give them more than they deserve, more credit than they deserve. Um, some might assume that um, they're under spiritual attack every time they get a headache or every time they miss a green light. Uh, others might attribute uh, most of their sin to demonic attack. And so others might become so obsessed that they live in constant fear. But the other abuse, or the other error, when it comes to approaching our idea or concept of demons, is to pretend like they don't exist at all. But Paul, along with the rest of the scripture, affirms their existence and regular activity. And in, in this particular case, it was demonic activity that was manipulating certain teachings that encouraged and exhorted men and women in the church to adhere to certain prohibitions and unnecessary regulations for the sake of securing their salvation. Now, promoting adherence to unnecessary prohibitions and requirements doesn't sound very demonic, does it? <laughs> Yet I would argue that 
the innocuous nature of these prohibitions is exactly what makes them demonic. See, they, they appear at first to be harmless, don't they? They are deceptive and well-hidden. You, at first sight, don't suspect that there's any demonic influence in some of these things. Do this, don't do that. Are there demons there? That's not usually our gut reaction. But if Satan's best strategy is deception, then the church really is in trouble of being fooled by false doctrines. See, most false doctrines contain just enough truth to resist detection. The most dangerous heresies often sound the most like authentic Christianity, and heresy is always mixed with a little bit of truth and error. It arrives kind of packaged together, um, and it's, it's often very difficult for us to distinguish. I mean, what is, what is heresy? It sounds a lot like orthodoxy. Now, if the source of these prohibitions was demonic, Paul says there was a method to infiltrating the church. Paul tells us the demonic activity works through the lives of hypocrites with neutralized consciences who are often very much engaged in the life of the church and known by men and women in the local church. So go back to chapter 4 of our text, um, middle of verse 1 on to verse 2. Uh, Paul further elaborates on what's going on here. What was causing these men and women in the church to leave the faith? Well, uh, he, he does say again, they were devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then through what means? Well, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, Paul, again, he's going through great trouble here to explain and expand on really what was behind all these people that were leaving the faith. And, and now he tells us there were these insincere liars who had seared consciences. And Paul labels the individuals through whom the demonic activity is at work as hypocrites, a word that here in your Bible, if you have an ESV, is translated with the word insincerity. They were insincere liars. They were hypocrites. Now, from the Greek theater, the word hypocrite meant to assume a role in some sort of dramatic production. So you would be playing a part. And so hypocrisy explains why heresy is so deceptive. Many false teachers are really good actors. They, they know how to play the part of a Christian. They can pretend to be as close to a Christian as they would like, just enough to, to buy you in to what they're selling. But Paul moves further, as if calling these, these demonic puppets hypocrites, um, he moves further to describe them as individuals who had seared consciences. Now, this would be the equivalent to saying that their consciences had been cauterized and insensitive to the touch. Now, if we say something is cauterized, we say, like in the medical sense, uh, cauterizing would involve the coagulating of live tissue with a burning instrument to stop the bleeding. So you take a heat, hot object, you burn off a certain part of it to then deaden that tissue. And once the nerves have been deadened, the skin is no longer able to feel pain. It's been dulled. You can't feel anything anymore. And so the same thing, this is what Paul's getting at here, and he, Paul does the same thing in some of his other letters too, but Paul's saying now that you can have a conscience that 
has the same thing happen to it, that it is seared, that it is dulled. The hypocrites that Paul is referring to are corrupt to the core, and their consciences are dulled and incapable of responding any longer to any moral right and wrong. What happens is then they're so immersed in sin and demonic activity that they become less interested and less affected by the gospel. So the danger arises when these demonically influenced individuals begin to think they have rediscovered a forgotten doctrine or they've just taken up some sort of political cause. They begin to follow a new method of family life or they've committed themselves to some kind of ministry, some pet project. But then they decide that what's good for them ought to be mandatory for everyone else. And so they give birth to amendments to the gospel constitution. It's no longer good enough to believe in the saving work of Jesus. His blood is no longer sufficient for you. You must now abstain. Now you are forbidden. Even if God created it good and gave it for your enjoyment, say no to it. Devote yourselves to, to my prohibitions or your eternal security will be called into question. And this is why prohibitions pervert the gospel of Jesus. Paul says that prohibition perverts the gospel, and if prohibition perverts, then the remedy is appreciation and advancement of the gospel. Appreciate and advance. So point two this morning appreciate and advance the gospel. The cure for, for overcoming gospel perversion is not hunting demons. I know we're getting close to, to Halloween tomorrow, but yeah, the, the answer is not to go out hunting demons, nor is it to push out false teachers or fight against heretical doctrines. The remedy comes in the form of expressing gratitude for what God has given us. The question is not whether the prohibition or regulation has any validity, but rather how strongly believers are quick to condemn it if someone claims your salvation depends on it. According to Paul, we must not regard it as excess piety or mere fanaticism, but we must declare these prohibitions as demonic teaching. So if any, any practice or participation offends or disturbs me, then the problem is not with the doctrine or with you, but with me. So turn to your neighbor right now and say, you don't need to keep my rules to be saved. I can't hear you. <laughs> now turn to your neighbor and say, be thankful Jesus is enough. We need to acknowledge that God made good things. And the problem with highly ascetic Christianity is that it rejects God's good gifts. God didn't intend for his generous, generous gifts to be squandered as we quickly formulate ways to forbid others from receiving his gifts with thankfulness. We also need to acknowledge that Paul does not say that everything is good, nor does he say everything created or made by man is good. He says that everything created 
by God is good. So look back with me, verses 3 and 4 of our text. In reference to these individuals who are prohibiting certain practices, in verse 3 he says, They forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. See, marriage and food, which were being prohibited and forbidden here at this church in Ephesus, marriage and food were created by God. They are good. Amen? Okay. I'm still not convinced. Marriage and food are good. Amen? Okay. It's God's goodness revealed in what he created more than human freedom that Paul desires here. And so therefore, Paul's statement in verse 4 that nothing is to be rejected is, is not to be taken as a license to declare all things good and acceptable, as if all wrongdoing and all manners of sin are now made holy by the word of God in prayer. Um, listen again to how Paul clarifies his statement. In verse 4, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. In other words, nothing that God created as good is to be rejected. Do you follow that? Nothing that God created as good is to be rejected. And although it might appear uh, that this is what Paul is suggesting, you and I do not possess the ability, ability to declare anything we desire as good. <laughs> uh, one helpful way, maybe, I, I assume anyways, there's probably other ways, but one helpful way uh, perhaps to examine whether God's good gifts are being used properly is to ask the question, can I thank God for what I am doing right now without being ashamed of myself? Can I thank God, express gratitude, thankfulness for what I am doing right now and not be ashamed about what I am doing? Praying before a meal doesn't make the food more holy than it already is, but thanking God for a meal is a, a proper way of acknowledging our gratitude for that daily food and recognizing it as a blessing from God. A G.K. Chesterton, he was an English essayist, a literary critic, a Christian apologist of the late 19th and 20th century. If you haven't read his book, Orthodoxy, I uh, highly commend it. Uh, but G.K. Chesterton, he aptly wrote, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Chesterton's point is that God is to be praised for everything he's created. Gratitude in the mind of Chesterton and in the mind of Paul as he's writing to Timothy, gratitude is a way of life. It's not a mechanical and often obligatory mindless stamp that we just place on things like our meals or anything else in life that we do. 
But gratitude is a way of the Christian's life to acknowledge and praise God for the things that he's given us. Now, the concept of gratitude is so important that it's mentioned twice in three verses. And it probably stood out very clearly. Paul says twice that we are to receive things with thanksgiving. In verse 3, he says, in contrast to those who are forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created, he created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be received if it's received a second time now with thanksgiving. So twice, Paul emphasizes the point of thanksgiving and gratitude. And in contrast to those who were departing from the faith, Paul identifies those who believe and know the truth. And I believe he does this in an attempt to emphasize the abiding awareness that true believers have of the fact that God has created these things that were being forbidden, that they are good, and therefore they should be gratefully received. Now, in his recently published book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, uh, Trevin Wax wrote the following. He said, The church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. Let me read that again. The church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. And if I can paraphrase that, paraphrase that based on what Paul is saying to Timothy, these demonic teachings, these prohibitions, these regulations, they only start to get in the way when we are no longer grateful and thankful for the good things God has given us. These things become tempting when we are no longer wowed by the wonders of the cross. Are we still amazed at the goodness of God? Do we still delight in his good gifts? Are we above all the most thankful for the wonders of the cross? Are we, are we fostering a culture of gratitude in response to the abundant generosity of Jesus? Paul believed this, and we ought to believe it. The followers of Christ must be the most grateful people of all. The generosity of Jesus does not produce a culture of restrictions and requirements. The generosity of Jesus does not encourage a culture of rule makers and prohibitions. The generosity of Jesus promotes a culture of gratitude. And for when gratitude... When our gratitude for the gospel and God's goodness begins to diminish, excessive restrictions and regulations begin to take root and soon drain the very joy of God's grace from our lives and severely distort and pervert the gospel of grace. One day, you will stand before the Father And for all that he might say to you, this I assure you he will not say. Because you fasted, 
because you abstain from alcohol, because you didn't watch that movie, because you only listened to Christian music, because you always voted Republican, welcome to life everlasting. Enter into joy forevermore. No, because that's legalism. That is not the gospel of grace. And in the words of Paul, that is demonic. What we should expect to hear from the Father will sound more like this. Because you trusted in the work of my Son. Because you trusted in him alone. Because Jesus hung on the cross and spilled his blood. Because you had faith in him and only him. Because Jesus conquered death and you believed. Enter into joy forevermore. We should be the most thankful men and women in all the earth, for God hasn't laid the burden of moral perfection upon us to fulfill. God's Son joyfully fulfilled the law perfectly. God's long list of regulations and restrictions revealed man's inability to keep and obey. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed. Thanks be to God that he removed the old covenant demands and established the new covenant of grace through faith in Christ alone without any perverse prohibition and requirements added. Through belief in the perfect work and spilled blood of Christ, we live as free men and women, free from our sin, free from condemnation, free from the wrath of God, and praise be to God, we are free to enjoy the goodness of God forever. And for that, we above all should be the most grateful people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, everything created by you is good, and nothing is to be rejected if we receive it with thanksgiving. We rejoice this morning with thankfulness that as we call upon the name of your Son, we are saved. Our sins are forgiven. May your Spirit fill us, renew us, and cause us to live a life of gratitude for the good gifts you have given us to enjoy. May the abundant generosity of Jesus, your Son, promote a culture of gratitude in our lives and right here at Grace Hill Church. Amen. Please stand and we'll continue to sing.